Welcome to the Center for Lit Podcast Network. You're listening to How to Eat an Elephant, a little book club for large books. Have you ever cast your eyes across a shelf full of classics and been driven screaming from the room by 500-page monsters with thick spines and important names? Then this is the show for you. We're here to take on these scary books together, because how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Hey guys, welcome back to How to Eat an Elephant. I am your host, joined by my co-hosts, as usual, Emily and Megan. Welcome, you two. How are we doing? Great. Pretty good. We're, we're you. We are miserables. <laughs> Today we are, lame miserables. Were you even a little bit prepared for how fast the movement got in the story here in this section? It was jarring to me. How suddenly full of activity Yeah, the chapters were? Yeah. We went from these long passages. I mean, the, the love story between Marius and Cosette and the long <laughs> depictions of how they look at love and all these things. Yeah. And all of a sudden, people are dying left and right. Boom, boom, boom. Yeah. It was pretty intense. Yeah. It's like, do you hear the people saying? A little fall. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's totally true. It's totally true. In the musical, like every one of these, every one of these scenes and characters has a long motif and there's a beautiful song about it and it takes a lot of time and then... It's like somebody sped the tape up. <laughs> Here at page 1,150. <laughs> yeah. I know, an ironic thing to say about such a long novel. <laughs> well, the opening chapter is entitled The Grandeur of Despair. It seems fitting here at the end of the school year. It refuses to become spring in the Pacific Northwest. It's so cold today. It's dark. It's cold. Flag one. It's going to be 80 degrees in two weeks, and Ian and I are headed to Alaska, where it will not be 80 degrees. I know. You're going no. the wrong way. You're going. <laughs> Turn around. The grandeur of despair. The grandeur of despair, indeed. <laughs> We're an uplifting bunch today. <laughs> it's Don't you guys want to spend an hour with us? Okay. Yeah. Welcome, welcome to the show. We're gonna rally. <laughs> <laughs> We've got a couple of rousing, rousing bouts from Gavroche. Maybe those will lift us. That's yeah, I was true. gonna say it's interesting to me that Gavroche bookends the section. Mm -hmm. There's probably some kind of thematic observation to be made there. Um, we we open on the barricade where Angelas and his friends are crouched with their carbines in their hands, waiting on the advancing troops, but they don't hear anything. It's dead silent until. Gavroche's little voice sings out in a warning song as he scrabbles back to the barricade, pursued by soldiers. Um, and then at the end of the section, Gavroche is making his way back to the barricade again, having delivered a message. Yep. What do you guys make of the fact that he is the the touchstone for the this part of the piece? Well, I've thought from the beginning that he's like uh, almost like in a Shakespeare play, how there's the the fool who speaks wisdom into the into the play, and he's kind of silly, and he's. Uh, He's lightning effect to each scene that he's in, but everything he says is significant. Uh, in this section, Gavroche is actually called a clown, which I think underscores that whole reading of his character. He he climbs over the barricade nimbler than a, clown, a clown. And I thought that was cool. The wisdom of childhood. Mm -hmm. He uh, And he's the future. He's the future generation for which they are supposedly fighting. 
he kind of represents everything that they're fighting for, which is which makes it interesting. In our previous section, Angel Ross was not very kind to the Book of Rosh. They're a little they're a little more welcoming of him. They appreciate his services in this section at least. Well, and he's pro- they made a deal, right? Gavrash says, look, if I go play lookout, when I get back, you have to give me a gun. <laughs> a big one. And yeah, a yeah. big one. <laughs> I want a great big one. <laughs> and Ross is like, yeah, sure, fine. So he comes back having successfully delivered the messages that the troops are on the way. And Ross says, do you want my carbine? And Gavrash's response is, I want the big musket. <laughs> give me that big guy. <laughs> but before, so before we get to that, we have the the little drama of the flag, right? That um, the first thing that happens when the the fire is opened upon the barricade is that they shoot down the flag, which seems like <laughs> that's not a very good sign, symbolically yeah, speaking. Symbolically. <laughs> but also, yeah, the symbolism definitely is there, but also it's practically kind of interesting because we're talking about a full broadside here from the troops, right? They're standing abreast on the road and everybody fires their muskets at once and... There's such a hail of bullets that it shoots the flag down, like shreds the pole the flag is on. So from the very beginning, it's pretty obvious that these boys don't have any kind of a chance of making it out of this alive. But that doesn't dampen their spirits at all, right? When the when the troops scream out and say, who goes there? Anzo Ross's response is, the French Revolution! Ah! <laughs> it's, very, it's very aggressive. Um, but I love the way that the troops are described. Their tread as they approach the barricade is, and I quote, so indescribably enormous and so multiple that it called up at the same time the idea of a throng and a ghost. Hmm. It was as though they were hearing the stride of the fearful statue legion. Hmm. There's something implacable and inhuman about the forces that are opposing these revolutionaries. Which makes it not just a political issue, but uh, this this feels very meta right it's, it's like, like the marching of time or fate, fate. or yeah. yeah i liked there actually were a couple of lines even before the section you read ian that i circled just because i'm an english major and i loved it the phrase um then the sound of footsteps measured heavy many even just the what is that called a conjuries when it's a piling up of the same part of speech that sounds like what it is is a little bit like onomatopoeia and i like the line after that too they approached slowly without a halt without interruption, with a tranquil and terrible continuity. Each one of those lines uh, kind of multiplies that feeling that we were talking about of, of fate uh, coming towards you not to be stopped, you know? Yeah, yeah. which is interesting because a lot of this section actually is wrapped up in the word continuity for me. Um, we, we've talked about Gavrash being the link to the next generation from these guys that are doing the fighting in this one. Um, but also when Angel Ross says, we need to put the flag back, Everyone is immobile, uh, frozen by the fear of this horrible hail of bullets, Um, except Father Mabuf, right, who has been catatonic in the in the pub the whole time. And he hears this call to raise the flag. And despite the fact that he's 80 plus years old and can barely move, um, rises up to put the flag back on its But not out of bravery or any kind of nobility right it's literally well that's the question i think and why i bring it up in the context of of continuity right like we've been we've been educated by the by the question of insurgency right in the last section we've been educated to think of this as the latest in a string of holy uprisings that this is something that the people do um in france particularly but maybe even across the world 
this is the way it goes when when a power has become overbearing the people rise up and correct the course of the nation and and i think hugo wants us to be looking at this this smaller revolution as something that is an extension of the one that came before it continuity but then now he's describing the measured tread of the government as a continuity. So that question hangs over it for me. Well, and then there's the whole confusion. All the people in the barricade are like, uh, this man, he was from 93. He's like the spirit of the old revolution. Like Combeferre. Yeah. Well, and and he, you know, he does his thing. This is the, um, his eyes were illumined by the mournful fires of insanity. So that's a questionable choice of words. Mm -hmm. And then he's, he puts in the flag, he, he, vive la Republic, right? And then he shot down, um, spread his arms are spread in the sign of the cross, which is very on the nose. Um, uh, the savior of the revolution, but like you said, yeah, Combeferre comes up to Angel or Angel Ross and is like, I we shouldn't share this with everyone else, but this guy he was he's just kind of he's crazy, like he was just kind of an old crazy. Yeah, he's just an old guy. Yeah, and a pacifist to boot. So, does the fact that these boys are accepting? are willing to look at this man as a symbol of the revolution, even if that isn't actually his background. Does the fact that they're willing to do that call into question the high ideals that were, that we respect in them? It seems very clear. We've said this before, but it seems very clear to me that Hugo is intentionally putting us in an uncomfortable spot between ideals that he, even he gets behind and, and wants us to get behind and the absurdities of reality. Hmm. Say more. What do you mean? Well, I think it's both end. Yes, the ideal. Yes, the imperfect, uh, messy reality that looks nothing like the ideal. And you can't actually behave in such a way as to achieve it. Um, right. So these boys are honorable in their commitment to these ideals, but they are also insane for taking this to such lengths. Yeah, I don't know. So how does Marius enter the scene? Well, that's to return to Gavrash. (laughs) Who shouldn't have had his big musket because he can't actually work it. Uh, And it's not loaded. And it's not loaded. And he's about to be shot. But Marius, which is interesting because in the section called Marius, Gavrash was kind of his foil. He opened Mm -hmm. and closed that section as well. Marius steps in and saves Gavrash's life. Which is interesting because now you have the two sons of the previous generation interacting. Uh, And Marius is going to realize uh, Gavroche's identity and his connection to the Tenardier family by the end of our section for today. So it's kind of like history coming full circle. Uh, Marius Paul Merci is finally fulfilling his promise to his father in every moment that he decides to help Gavroche, the offspring of Tenardier. Hmm. That's right. Yeah, cool. the the description of him entering the the conflict echoes that he, at the beginning of section four of this chapter. It says, however, he was not able for long to resist that mysterious and sovereign infatuation that could be called the appeal of the abyss. Faced with imminent peril, the death of Monsieur Mabeuf, that fatal enigma, faced with Baharel slain, Corvarac crying help, and that child threatened, his friends to succor or to avenge, all hesitation had vanished, and he had rushed into the conflict. 
he he's drawn in by the abyss, which feels a lot like Monsieur Mabuff's reasons for joining. A crazy death wish. And yet, yeah. yeah, a crazy death wish. And yet it's the individuals. It's the it's seeing his friends in danger. It's Gavroche's plight that that moves him to act on in the barricade, which mm-hmm. to me, like that that is a good reason. The, the actual relationships that he has and the desire to serve and protect them. Yeah. There is a distinction between the reasons he is in this fight and the reasons Angel Ross is in this fight, for example. I think that's really good. The other bit of imagery that I noticed um, just now is that the rifle or not the rifle, the musket that Gavroche is carrying belonged to Javert who hadn't oh. loaded it. And I think the idea of Javert as a musket that isn't loaded might have some legs as we read along. That's kind of a cool image. Marius is also using his weapons, the two pistols. Mm-hmm. So wait, give us a little more. Why, why are the guns significant? Is it because of Javert representing the law? Is it like the law going into these people's hands? But it's, Or maybe it's justice. Impotent? Hmm. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder. I mean, Javert represents justice, right? Impersonal justice, justice without mercy. And Marius is carrying his pistols and Gavroche is carrying his musket. The pistols are effective, though. Mm-hmm. But it's because they're, they're saving individuals, not because they're devoted in service to the revolution. Interesting. Well, that's fun. That's a hot take. I don't know. Maybe we're making too much of that, but it's an interesting take. <laughs> well, one more gun that's definitely loaded is the one that tries to shoot Marius and actually shoots Eponine. That happens kind of in the background almost immediately. After Marius has saved Gavroche, Eponine saves Marius, like within about two paragraphs. They're moving awful fast. Yeah, you're right. There's there's like a breakneck pace here. And Marius, true to Marius' form, does not notice that someone has thrown themselves between him and a gun and is dying now, bleeding out in some corner. No attention paid whatsoever. Which, of course, um, Hugo dismisses him for, right? He basically says, look, it's combat. It's hard to notice many things. Um, there's lots of smoke from the guns, and there's adrenaline, and um, I don't think he blames Marius for not noticing that. No, that's just me. But I <laughs> Megan blames Marius. <laughs> I blame him, <laughs> too, because his reaction to Eponine when, it is, uh, when he does find out that it was Eponine who saved his life and she calls him into the alley dying, he is much less moved by this act than I of sacrifice him to be from than the musical. he is in the musical. Yes. I Okay, I want to talk about this more because, so, but first, but before we jump there, <laughs> let's, let's deal with the fact that Marius actually takes a step beyond just saving Gavroche and uh, Korfriak. Um, he also recognizes that the barricade is about to be swarmed takes the powder keg from inside the restaurant, smashes it onto the paving stones and takes a torch and says, I'm going to blow us all to heck if you don't retreat. And the cast of his face and his demeanor convinces the troops that he means it. (laughs) It's the same. He's compared to Monsieur Mabuff and it's the same kind of suicidal desperation. Yeah. Yeah. And so we shouldn't be shocked when Angel Ross and the rest of the guys look at him with religious fervor when he's done. Just like they did. When he says, where's the leader? Angel Ross himself says, you're the leader. You know, insanity. That's our cause. (laughs) 
Right. Or, it's a little, yeah, go ahead, Emily. Well, is it, it's insanity. It's, uh, it's coming out of the abyss. These men are in their own minds, at least they have been pushed to the limit and there is no life left for them. And that is when they react in violence. And I, that does seem thematically in keeping with what Hugo has been saying, right? These these boys who are clinging to ideals, but maybe have not experienced experienced as much personal suffering in their lives are frozen uh, and they're paralyzed when it comes to actually engaging in the fighting. But it's the men who feel like they have nothing left who hmm. actually rise up and, and do something and do about something. it. Yeah. Now, I do think that it's complicated because I think both Monsieur Mabuff and Marius are have not seen their situations clearly. <laughs> but Well, Mabuff may have. I mean, this is the guy, after all, who has been experiencing extreme poverty and has no hope of... He, resu- he refused the gift of heaven, though. The the coins. Oh, sorry. I don't mean to cut you off. I have another no, comparison that's burning in my it. breast. You know how last week we were talking about um, the contrast or the foil relationship between Marius and Angel Ross? And then also Angel Ross and Gavroche and like all of these youthful ideological figures, right? Mm-hmm. In this chapter, Marius basically is handed the torch by Angel Ross. You're the leader now. You're the representative of our revolution. And we get to like step inside Marius's mind for a moment. And we get that weird philosophical sentence that goes, Marius had lived too little as yet to know that nothing is more imminent than the impossible. And that what we must always foresee is the unforeseen. He was a spectator of his own drama as of a play one does not grasp. So here he is in the grip of this, this fate and he's watching his life play out. Maybe there we could have a conversation about providence. And I was doing that as I was listening along and reading. But the very next paragraph turns immediately to Javert, who is watching the scene from the corner. And I just thought the sentence was so cool. He watched the revolt going on about him with the resignation of a martyr and the majesty of a judge. Marius did not even notice him. So we have two characters watching the world go on, the drama of life going on in front of them as if they are uh, unconcerned by it. Like they're like they're stepping back. There's some kind of outward perspective, but there's such a contrast in their attitudes towards the world going on around them. And I thought that was, that was fascinating and maybe room for a little conversation. What do you guys think about that? That's really interesting. I hadn't thought of it. I mean, it's um, if Javert is, <sighs> yeah, I don't know how to answer that question. Javert is a judge, well, right? right? And, and he, so in, and he's resigned to martyrdom and and complacent, I think, because he feels himself to be in the right. Marius, on the other hand, isn't really concerned with what's right or wrong. He's concerned with what's real and unreal, because what he can't wrap his head around is that all this is actually happening. Is this some kind of crazy nightmare? Is this a dream? Like, I, it's going too fast. I don't understand is, is the place that Marius is in, which it means Marius is more personally concerned with what's happening than Javert is, even though... Javert is equally at risk of losing his life. Yeah. Right. It seems like Marius is is participating in this scene, but aware that he's his participation is not because of his agency. He's participating without his will. He's finding himself in the middle of it. And Javert is firmly convinced that his will is the only thing that matters, and he's not participating at all. He's standing on the sideline, keeping himself distant from his fellow man. 
standing as a God figure instead of being a man with everyone else. And I think that intellectually, is I think you're absolutely right. Cool. He is, however, tied to a post. Well, he is. So there's not I mean, a whole lot he can do. No agency physically going on for him at all. But I feel like this this sentence made me see Javert philosophically as a little god man who's as an actor in the piece, clinging to his agency with mm. all of his fierce will. You know, that's yeah. I, I buy it, Megan. That first line that you read is really critical. Like it, like kind of maybe a thematic key to one of the things that's been happening in this novel where it says uh, he had not lived long enough to know nothing is more imminent than the impossible. I don't know if you guys remember how many times we've been told that uh, either Jean Valjean or Eponine or someone has done something for which it was, it was no longer possible for them. Um, later on in the next chapter that we read for today, uh, Jean Valjean is going to say uh, it, he he's losing Cosette. It's not it's it's not possible. His life is no longer possible. Um, and so there's this idea that the the impossible is actually what's imminent. What what can't and that there's just some, I don't know. There's something beautiful about that because um, the to tie it back to agency and non agency, the possible is what you have agency to do. And the impossible is you have no agency to it achieve comes from outside you possible from the is the imminent yeah i love that that's a very hopeful reading okay so on to a section where there are going to be some fisticuffs i sense them coming because before we get to gavroche and valjean and the 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 final section of today's <laughs> reading um we have to talk about eponine and marius and eponine's I feel death like i know what you're gonna say and, and i might agree with you but still Here's the situation. Here's the situation. You guys have already said that Marius displays an insufficient amount of pathos over this whole situation. I I didn't get a chance to say anything, but I'll wait my but turn. But I will but I will also say that Eponine is a lot less salvific yes. than she is in the musical and is a lot more selfish. manipulative and selfish. Yeah. You're right. No, oh, you're right. So what are we to make of this scene? We we came in primed. Any all you lovers of the musical know this. We came in primed for a little fall of rain, they and it was going to be heartrending rain, and beautiful. They don't talk about stars. There's right. no stars. There are no flowers. I'm disappointed rain by the doesn't make rain. flowers grow in Paris. There aren't any flowers in Paris. Sure, flowers, just mud. So yeah, it's just mud and blood and death. So, so what do you make of this? Whose side are we on here? We're glad Marius is alive. Eponine has been such a, a compelling figure thus far. It was a little shocking. I mean, shocking and or like, oh, finally a bit of reality to find that she actually had been jealous in her love. Because thus far, she's been very sacrificial. And she even says something to that effect, right? Like, I'm not sure why I did this. I knew you were a young man. And I knew what you were going to do when I gave you that address. But if I'm dying, you're going down with me. Right. I mean, Hugo doesn't, he doesn't make any bones about it. Basically, Eponine had a letter from Cosette to give to Marius, and she intentionally didn't do that so that he would go to the barricade so that they could die together. Yeah. That's how specific he is. Megan, what do you think? Well, I mean, I think all these things, you're, th these, this is all to be found in the text. Both of these characters <laughs> are, are flawed. And um, ultimately selfish, but I think that makes it, I think that adds to the pathos. It doesn't take it away. A Little Fall of Rain is, is gorgeous, but it's two perfect characters suffering in the face of an unfair universe. 
And, and you're this like, scene. You should have ended up with Ebony and look at right. what she did for you and look well, how selfless she exactly. is. Exactly. <laughs> it's a little bit like the love triangle is broken in the musical because you don't believe that Marius should end up with Cosette, period. I mean, Eponine is like this salvific, perfect creature. And this scene, the way that it plays in the book, makes more sense of the relationships. I think it's a little more human. She even says, you thought me ugly and I wanted you to die. So this was <laughs> never going to work. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, give me that letter. I'm really kind of thinking about Cosette right now. <laughs> wow, that's harsh. It's, Goodness I gracious. mean, it is. It, this definitely felt like Hugo really uh, being a little vicious with his with his reality. But it did play with, you know, the ring of truth. Yeah. Hmm. hmm. Yeah, they're just, they don't even... I mean, yeah, they hardly see each other in that moment. They do. They hardly see each other. Um, yeah, it it still it still hits though. The very end when she's dying and she says, "You know, Monsieur Marius, I believe I was a little in love with you," and she tried to smile and died. And I just think that actually that still should make you cry. Mm-hmm. Whether yeah, that character who's saying that her. is flawed or not, she deserves a kiss. You know. Yeah, and I also think that that. Um, I think we can defend Marius a little bit in his response because, for example, he doesn't open up the letter and read it as soon as her eyes close. No, he doesn't. And not in, not in the sight of the corpse. Leaves. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. He, he somehow knew that he shouldn't read this letter inside of the corpse. Mm-hmm. Which is, I mean, maybe what you can expect from a young man who just swore he was going to blow up a giant pile of rubble with himself on top of it. I, mean, I also a lot going on. appreciate the clarifying sentence at the beginning of chapter seven. Uh, my my child self appreciates this. I have to tell a brief story before I tell you what line I'm thinking of. When I saw <laughs> the original musical in our basement with dad and the rest of the, the 10th kids. anniversary yep. Broadway cast recording. He is a huge musical fan. Mr. A is and and this is the very first musical that he really fell in love with. And he was showing it to us, all six of his passel of children, some of whom didn't really understand the language of English yet. I mean, we were young. But yeah, I, I don't like, remember Calvin caring all that no, much. No, Calvin and Charlie didn't care at all. But you and I were tracking. And I all knew we enough to know that like Eponine was pretty and she was a girl and he was a handsome man. And now she's like dying in his arms and it's lovely. But then also Cosette. I mean, there had been like lovey scenes with Cosette. And I was so confused. So a little fall of rain is happening. And dad is, I remember him sitting on the edge of his seat and he's like listening to the music. The music is what matters to him. And the music is just (laughs) swelling and beautiful. And he's, it's just looks wrapped with attention. And I cannot get it out of my head that this man is a bad man because (laughs) Cosette is the one that he's supposed to be in love with. And he's cheating on Cosette. I mean, even nine-year-old me is like, this is not right. So I interrupted in the middle of the climactic moment of a little fall of rain. I'm like, Dad, <laughs> this isn't right. <laughs> what about Cosette? Marius is the worst. And he goes, oh, Megan. <laughs> and he got so annoyed with me and like told me to shush and rewinded the scene and tried it again. But this is something in our little hearts that requires proof that there is, there's nothing immoral going on here. And listen to this. Hugo knows it. On page 1141, he says, this was not infidelity to Cosette. It was a thoughtful, <laughs> gentle farewell to an unhappy soul. And you guys, I feel relieved. <laughs> you feel relieved. I do. Since I a some, small child, you've been some concerned. Some resolution, like many years later. Dad did not give it to me. He had no time for this. But Hugo took the time, and I appreciate him. <laughs> that is really funny. <laughs> oh, 
Well, as we are saying goodbye to Eponine, any parting shots? Any final yeah, comments? Yeah, do you guys think Cosette would give her life for Mary? No. <laughs> yes. I really don't. I think she would. I don't either. I don't oh, think I absolutely I think she would. I think the, the book version of Cosette is a lot deeper than the than the musical version. I think the book version of Cosette is a lot like the book version of Buttercup from The Princess Bride. <laughs> oh, come now. Whose fault is that, though? Valjean has kept her completely hidden away from the entire world. This is true. I guess that's probably what we should talk about next time. Huh? Yeah. So, <laughs> sure. yeah, that's actually a great segue. Yeah. Nice work. So what happens here is um, Eponine mentions that her brother, she hears her brother singing and Gavrosh is basically um, offering another warning that there are more troops. And she says, oh, there's my brother. And he goes, your brother. And then he realizes the connection between Eponine and Gavrosh and therefore between Gavrosh and the Tenardiers. And he realizes, oh, this is a chance for me to make good on my promise. I need to get Gavrosh out of here so that he doesn't get shot. And so he, and it's convenient because he needs a messenger because the note from Cosette has finally happened at, with Eponine's dying breath. She, she hands him the note and he realizes that Cosette is still in the city. They haven't left for England yet. And he still thinks it's impossible. He's still full of despair and it's grandeur. <laughs> <laughs> But he needs to write her a, a note, a sort of a final note. So he jots down something like, I'm going to die. Remember me. My soul is coming to you. And then he hands it to Gavrash and he says, hey, take this money and go deliver this note for me. And Gavrash says, okay. But then what if they take the barricade while I'm, while I'm gone? Because I really, I really want to see that. That's going to be cool. <laughs> and... Marius, rather than explain to Gavrosh that this is no place for little boys, says, no, you'll have plenty of time because they're probably not going to attack again until the morning. So go now and then you can, you know, and then come back tomorrow. And, and, you know, you won't miss anything. Of course, hoping that it'll all be over by the time Gavrosh gets back. Two birds, one stone. Message Gavrosh delivered. is too Gavrosh smart, though. Saved. He calculates his own speed. And I can just see him doing math on his fingers. Three miles. <laughs> I can do this. I can get there and back before the next attack. And so, boom. Off he goes with the note to find Valjean. Well, because he defines Valjean. Right. Meanwhile, Valjean has discovered something. Whoa. Whoa, whoa. Cosette and Marius suck at being secretive. Oh my gosh, they leave messages out in the open all the time. All the time. Everybody knows about Marius and Cosette. I did think it was kind of cool that Hugo is like, like this was not the only uprising happening in Paris. There was also the uprising of the individual. Like, he's got his own. It, it confirms that the revolution is a device as well as a setting. Detail. Yeah, I think that's true. I also love that he pretended to be Agatha Christie in this scene. <laughs> the mirror. <laughs> yeah, Hugo was like, we got to come up with a cool way to make this happen. Oh, I know. If you blot something and then hold it up to a mirror... <laughs> So Valjean has figured out that Cosette is in love with some little dude and he realizes the little dude is Marius. Yeah. And this causes um, one of my favorite lines. Actually, I had reason to bring this line up earlier today in a different podcast. Um, there's a line about the darkness of the soul or the issues of the individual soul being even grander than the issues of the people or even darker than the issues of the people. Mm. And it's a cool tension. I think Hugo has been talking about, the people of France, the oppressed, the the miserable of France as an individual character, right? That wars against the government, that fights for its future. Um, and we and we've been given 
little symbols of that, Enjolras maybe, or Gavroche here and there, um, but they're symbols of the soul of the people of France, right? This is Paris, or this is France. Um, and we're and we're supposed to take it seriously. We're supposed to be watching the ebb and flow of the ideas and how it affects the people. But in this scene, he takes an even deeper dive and says, don't ever forget, the people are made up of individuals and the human heart is a mysterious place. And let's see what happens to Valjean. And also we can't see. I actually do. It's it's funny and Agatha Christie-esque, but also I, I think that it's it's symbolic that he cannot see what's going on right in front of his eyes mm-hmm. until there's something something about seeing in the mirror darkly. The mirror actually is what helps him see, but he has to look. He needs help in order to see what's really going on from outside. Yeah. So, of course, his instinctive and knee-jerk response to the idea of Cosette being in love with a man is hatred, right? It's the, uh, Hugo calls it the final defeat, right? He hadn't been overcome all these years by any of his sufferings, but this was the straw that broke the camel's back. (laughs) What do you make of the description of Valjean's affection for Cosette? I was just looking at that again. I don't know. I I thought it was it was uh, powerful and also just right on the edge of a little bit weird. Is that okay oh, to say that? Oh yeah, the one where he was like husband, father, yep. lover, I'll be mama and papa and lover, and yeah, brother and sister. I'll be everything to you. To you. And on the one hand, you're like, okay, that makes sense because that's his only family and he's loved her his with his whole life and has sacrificed everything for her. But it is strange that here he acts like a jealous lover. In some ways, I thought that was weird. Yeah. Did you? Did you kind of feel like even Hugo like was afraid of this section that he was like? It, it felt like lover, it freaked him out. But it wasn't weird. He's like, <laughs> like I don't yeah, know how to tell you. Says that. He does. He says, "Poor old Jean Valjean did not certainly love Cosette otherwise than as a father." But and then he goes on to say, "But also, he's kind of butthurt like a lover would be." <laughs> well, yes, that's certainly true. But I. I also think that his explanation of it is really elegant. I mean, more or less what he says is this man has never had anyone to love him or anyone to love. Mm -hmm. And he's been restricted by his circumstances, by evil fate from having a normal outlet for, for any of these different shades of love, right? Whether you love your, your mother or your sister or whoever it might be. And, and so all of them are wrapped up into one and given to Cosette. The expression of it, obviously, is fatherhood, but it's um, it contains everything. And I think it, in me, it, it births compassion for Valjean. I understand where he is. I get the I get the bewilderment and the terror and the the response, which is rage. I, I totally understand he, what he's going through. Do you think it's too far to say that he, in identifying Cosette with all of these relationships, he has allowed her to he's trying to have her fill more roles than she possibly can as one human being. And in so doing, he's kind of made of her a God. Like he has mistaken her for the God who, who gave her to him. Mm-hmm. Oh I yeah, think it's absolutely. absolutely fair. I saw that in his, in his final decision, he says, there's a beloved. I am only the father. I no longer exist. If your existence is all wrapped up in, in another human being, that is, that's idolatry. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I think that's true. 
I think it's true. And what an understandable idolatry mm-hmm. it is. I mean, we have been one of the perks of this being page 1149 or whatever it is, is <laughs> we that we've been following them. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. We, yes, we have been on the interior of this man through sufferings and trials that have lasted for what? I mean, we've been walking with him for 30 plus years. Um, and so I get it, man. And my heart bleeds for him. However, we aren't given any kind of a resolution for what's going to happen. We are given what I think might be a subtle nudge towards you thought I was going to turn Valjean into a scary killer, but he's still Jean Valjean. When Gavroche shows up and his instinctive response is, oh man, this kid's hungry. Let me give him more money than he's ever seen in his life. I love their interaction. This is not a deep and thematic thing to say. I just thought that after all of the deep, dark, twisty that Jean Valjean brings to the page, then Gavroche comes and back to the whole fool analogy. Their interaction is so funny. Jean Valjean says, little boy, what's the matter? And Gavroche responds, the matter is that I'm hungry. And he added, little yourself. (laughs) 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 I just thought, okay, keeping it real. I'm going to make a bold statement. I'm not 100% sure it's true. But is it possible that this is the first moment that Jean Valjean has not thought in terms of uh, his own rightness and wrongness in that in as much as Gavroche says, uh, you're going to make me stop or like you're giving me this money so that I'll stop destroying the lampposts. And Jean Valjean says, break as many as you like. Like the, this gift is not contingent on your correct behavior. He has the he has the uniform of a national guard, which is the enemy, and yet, at having been utterly bowled over by this revelation about Cosette, his first action is actually one of grace to not look at Gavroche through the lens of what is right and wrong, like Javert would. But to extend. yeah, uh, yeah. On the other hand. What he's doing is paying Gavroche to give him a note meant for Cosette so that he can yeah, intercept well, said that. note. And I think the implication is so that he can go to the barricade and make sure that Marius dies. There's that, yeah. But it it, it reads a little bit like that scene where he was going to go to the courtroom just to make sure that everything gets squared away so that he's in the clear. That's a good and point. The other guys identified as Jean Valjean. Yes, and also this scene reminds me of a scene from the very beginning when he's trying to decide his life's on a knife's edge. A man has given him his inheritance and said, now go and and be a man of God. And in response, he steals a coin from another little boy who's a lot like Gavroche. And here we have Jean Valjean on a knife's edge again. I love that. And he's handing a coin to a little boy, but we're not sure of his intentions even still. He's, I I don't know. Thematically, though, those two scenes balance. Yeah, Yeah, that's beautiful. I love that. I hadn't seen that. That's awesome. I really like it. Well, I, I'm i not sure how much more deep insight I can wring out of this section, but I do think there's a great humorous tidbit here at the very end when Gavroche decides to tilt a drunk out of his push cart, his hand cart, <laughs> and take the cart to improve the barricade, and then runs into a bunch of soldiers and pushes the cart at them in order to get away. And the response of the soldiers is to uh, elaborate on that story because they feel silly <laughs> having been beaten by a little gamin. And, um, and so it goes down in the annals of the police department's history as a noted battle. So the <laughs> nocturnal attack on the post of yeah. the Imprimeur Royale. 
even though it was literally just Gavrash singing some nonsense song, skipping down the road with a handcart. <laughs> I oh just goodness. love it. Which is just a little picture in microcosm of what's happening at the barricade. Yeah. Real history being made by small people. I actually think that might be true. And the question of whether real history is accurately recorded is brought up by that as well. Hmm. Um, maybe these boys are just pushing a handcart at a police department. Maybe that is the effect of this revolution. Yeah. That. I don't know, both of the images that we get for Gavroche in this scene. He's a fly in a bottle. He's making all the uproar of a fly in a bottle. But it's also a hydra of anarchy who's gotten out of its box. And I think both of those are true of the revolutionaries, too. They are not going to last much more than a fly in a bottle. And yet, it is a hydra of anarchy. You cut off its head, it will spring up again, you know? I'm full of fear. A fear? About the sewers? Because we just... <laughs> I love that she knew what you meant. <laughs> we just officially finished the book San Denis, so we are on to the last one. Entitled Jean Valjean. Jean Valjean. When are we scheduled to finish this book, you guys? I think that this last section we have divided. I need to put it up on the website and schedule forthcoming. But let's see, we have it divided into five more episodes, and then I'm sure we'll do end of book oh, fun recaps maybe we'll do a, a music only episode where ian and emily and i all sing won't you all sign up <laughs> the for entire that? the entire musical. we will sing all of lament <laughs> in one hour as fast as we can <laughs> ian gets master of the house <laughs> don't tempt me frodo <laughs> well thank you both for your insights as usual and thank you listeners for joining us if you've been listening since the beginning of the Les Mis section of our show. Bless you. Bless you. Thank you for your attention. And also, jump on Facebook and tell us that. I'm an OG. Mm-hmm. I've been here <laughs> since the beginning because we would love to know how many of you have been following along and we'd love to hear from you. Doesn't OG mean original gangster? It in fact does. And funny story, I just received uh, an email from one of my seminary professors who's a very old man. Um, and he signed it OG. <laughs> <laughs> how old are we talking here? Uh, he's pushing 80, I bet. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what it could possibly mean. There's like I'm, chain. I'm racking my brains. no indication in his manner that he would joke in that way? No. <laughs> no, I, I'm racking my brains for some kind of theological like phrase, right? Like sola deo gratia. I, I, had a, I knew a guy that signed his, his emails SDG. Um, but I, I, so I have no idea what OG could possibly mean. So until he clarifies... He We're is the original the <laughs> And he's certainly old enough to be the original gangster. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, friends, get back to your reading, and we will see you again soon for another episode of How to Eat an Elephant. Bon appetit. Bon appetit. Want to follow along with our reading? You can find a link to the schedule in the show notes for this episode. How to Eat an Elephant is a part of the Center for Lit podcast network. Visit our website at www.centerforlit.com to find our other literary shows, resources, and our membership program, The Pelican Society, where you can get access to a variety of live discussion groups. You can also find us on most social media channels. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, happy reading.